our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hi, and welcome to Unspun This Week. Today, I'm going to keep going at understanding why some stories get covered and why some stories don't. And then... We're also going to talk about how politicians and other newsmakers sometimes time their information to distract you. But before we get started, if you have the time and the interest, I would love it if you would go to whatever feedback mechanism you have on the podcast platform you're listening on right now and leave me a review. It is so helpful to me to understand what people find valuable or what needs to improve on the podcast. Also, your ratings and reviews help make Unspun easier for other people to find. So if you have the time to do that, I would appreciate that so much. Okay, let's get unspun. We talked about news values a little bit in the last episode. We looked at things like conflict, which is a big one that these organizations try to play up, sometimes to the detriment of the audience. And we looked at some others as well. And if you missed that conversation, you can find it back on episode 12. But today we're going to look at some other news values. You know, the specific elements that make a story so much more interesting or important or urgent. News values help outlets pick up what story to cover at all. Stories about famous people are more likely to get covered. Stories about the local area are more likely to get covered. And then we're going to look at some different ones. The first one is impact. Things in the news can create some pretty widespread effects, right? So, for example, a fire can cause millions of dollars of damage, or a shooting can hurt and kill dozens of people. It's about impact. A big election can affect new policies. A new medical discovery could make people's lives better. If there's an economic problem, it might mean that people don't have a job anymore. It's the news that leaves a mark. And so impact is a big news value. Now, I remember back when I was a reporter, I was a little on the younger side and I didn't have maybe the judgment of some older people. But I was the weekend reporter this one weekend and that meant that I worked on Friday and Saturday nights to be the person who would pick up any breaking news that really needed to be in the next day's issue. And that night we had two stories that happened at the same time. One of them was a company downtown that had a fire. And that fire, because it was right downtown, it was very visible. You know, big giant flames in the air, and you could hear all the fire trucks going by and those kinds of things. Now, the fire itself actually happened in sort of an office building area of the company. So most of the stuff that was destroyed was things like office equipment. At the same time, out on the edge of the county, a child actually fell overboard off of a boat and was missing. Now, you'll remember last time we talked about the importance of visuals in coverage. And it was dark. It was winter. There were a lot of different pieces of the story of the missing child that were still kind of going on. So we didn't really even have all the information. 
The editor at the time sent me to go to the fire and sent the one photographer who was on duty to go to the river. And when it came time to pick the story on the front page, the editor chose to run the fire as the major story. And I remember that photographer coming back and having a loud discussion over the choice of news values in that. The argument was that a company losing $10,000 of office equipment is not the same impact as the life of a child. Generally speaking, things that have a higher cost or a higher number of lives lost or a thing that has, you know, higher cost in money, those are more likely to get covered and will be more likely to show up earlier in a newscast, more immediately on social media or on the front page in print. Another news value is bizarreness. You might hear about a story where some fool tries robbing a convenience store, but the dummy is wearing a shirt that has his name embroidered on it. We like talking about these kind of things. Honestly, I feel like a lot of people who want to spread misinformation will just play up that bizarreness part of the news value as well. Here's an example that you might remember from the news recently. So Andrew Tate is a former kickboxer who tries to be edgy online by saying misogynistic things and generally being provoking and inflammatory. And he has gotten into social media spats with other people before, notably one with climate activist Greta Thunberg. A little over a year ago, he posted a video taunting Thunberg, and shortly after, he was arrested by the Romanian police. And he was facing charges for human trafficking and rape and other things. And that's when the rumor started. It started with a Facebook post that said that Tate was arrested because there was a pizza box in his video that gave away his location. And let me tell you, that rumor had legs. It showed up on a bunch of different social media platforms and even in regular news sites. It was a great story. It was too good to be true, and it was not true. It was later debunked. It's a great example of the bizarreness news value, I think, though, because it shows why it spread so much. So, bizarreness. This kind of curiosity just really grabs attention. Another news value is continuity. And continuity is when you have ongoing coverage or an issue or a story that's just been showing up again and again over time. When you do have strong continuity, sometimes there can even be cliffhangers where people are just waiting to see what's going to happen in the next chapter. I think the interest in the upcoming trials of the former president are a good example of this. You have a very long time in between actions in a court thing like this. But you also see a very large number of news stories and even podcasts about these cases. News organizations know that it is an upcoming event that people are very interested in, even if it is months away. So they try to keep leading people along to follow the story with them by publishing sometimes a full story when there really isn't any news to report. Or maybe there's one tiny thing, but it will get reported in a full story that really is just mostly background. I also think it's interesting how true crime podcasts kind of do this in reverse. They take something where you already know the ending, and they stretch it out into a multi-episode narrative leading up to that. The final news value I want to talk about this week is logistical constraints. Logistical constraints highlight the really very real difficulties and dangers that uh, journalists have to overcome sometimes to share information. So for example, it's really expensive to keep correspondence in other countries. The news organization has to pay for a lot of stuff. You know, to cover something in a conflict area, they often need to pay for their reporter to be there, but they also need to pay for security, translators, fixers who arrange interviews for people, drivers, protective equipment. You see what I'm saying? And sometimes it's not even an expense, but it's just time. So for example, there are many, many stories that could be told today about things that are happening in the government. It could be about ways that policies are being implemented, ways that your money is being spent. 
it can be very difficult to get that kind of information out of the government. Last episode, my guest talked about that a little bit. Again, that's episode 12, but it can take months to sometimes years to get that kind of information. And often a journalist ends up kind of developing their own database. Major investigative stories like the one the Boston Globe did about the Catholic Church that you could see in the movie Spotlight, those will take several reporters offline for, again, sometimes months to do that kind of deep investigative work. And as the American news industry is financially kind of collapsing, there just aren't the funds to do those kind of investigations. And in other cases, reporters just don't have the expertise to actually deal with that kind of data. There are relatively few people working in journalism today who have all of those skills. So your local news may be missing out on big and important stories just because it's too logistically difficult to cover them. And often those things just don't get covered. So that's logistical constraints. So again, those news values guide what is chosen for coverage, the ways in which it's going to be covered, right? Like what resources might be available for a particular story, and they cover the way that it's shared with you. They're very important in making sense of the news that you have. And if you haven't done it or heard it already, I do recommend going back to episode 12, particularly where I talk about the conflict news value, because in an election year, it is really, really important to understand that one. I need to take a quick break, but when I come back, we're going to look at how newsmakers sometimes try to divert the spotlight from themselves. Welcome back. Here's something that I remember from my reporting days. Seeing someone make one stink to hide another. So here's the nice version. You can think about a kid who's about to get a bad report card. She does a really great job of cleaning her room, hoping that the glow from the cleaning will mitigate the fallout from the bad grades. And sometimes politicians do this, too. Are you going to vote with your party on a bill that you know is going to be negative for your constituents? Maybe it's time to schedule an appearance at the high school homecoming game, or even better, a pro game where you might get on the jumbotron. Here I am at home taking care of business. You know, and that's just a distraction from the bad news. Here's the not-so-nice version. If that kid is about to get a bad report card, so she sets the house on fire, expecting that the devastation from the fire is just going to put that bad report card in perspective. Sometimes politicians do this. You might, for example, have a corruption investigation going on for you or someone in your party, and you don't want that to hit the news cycle too hard, so you introduce a controversial bill. Maybe you want to require schools to pull books from the library that any parent doesn't like, or you want to require all state government workers to carry guns. Honestly, you don't even have to introduce legislation. You just have to talk about it. Now, a well-staffed newsroom can handle this. You know, you might put Maria on the corruption story and assign Mo to the bill, but there's a growing problem here. This presumes that the newspaper is well-staffed. And in a year when the LA Times just cut 20% of its news staff, it is not at all a sure thing anymore that there are well-staffed newsrooms. So what happens? The controversial bill will gather a lot of attention. And you know, this is true, even if it is very unlikely to pass. A politician standing on the steps talking about something that will never happen still gets cameras pointed at him because of the bizarreness of the thing he's proposing. And that means attention can cause action that maybe becomes real news if maybe protests spring up. And so those protests can and should become their own story. And then it gets really tricky. Algorithms come into play as stories start getting shared on social media. So when news is promoted or demoted based on attention, even if the newsroom has enough resources to cover both stories, one's going to get shared and grow in importance and show up in everyone's news feeds, and the other one's just going to fade away. So the news stink, even though it may not be real, that becomes the one that everybody sees to talk and think about. The important story gets pushed to the bottom. 
So let's look at a couple of examples of distracting stinky stories for today's warm-up. We just added, because I think it needs to be done, uh, no tax permanently on gas stoves. They want your gas stove, and we're not going to let that happen. That's Florida governor and one-time presidential candidate Ron DeSantis talking about gas stoves. Talking about signing an order or putting in legislation that would make it so the gas stoves could not be regulated in Florida. This was never an issue in Florida. This was an issue in New York that they were talking about having some restrictions on gas stoves. But talking about gas stoves as if it was a serious issue in Florida could help make a difference in distracting people from other things that were going wrong. You know, maybe when a certain rodent-themed amusement company had conflicts with your state's government. Executives like governors and presidents are particularly able to do this because they can issue executive orders and they control the timing on those. A team of professors from National University of Singapore and Cornell found that they actually do do this. So let's listen to another example. So the, the uh, president, uh, and I never asked for the pardon, pardoned me because he knew that this decision was wrong and, uh, and I appreciate that pardon and, uh, and we'll see what happens in the near future. We have you just listened to Sheriff Joe Apio. He was the recipient of President Donald Trump's first pardon. Arpaio was known for taking a hard line on immigrants. And as The Guardian described it, quote, the immigrant's son grew up to be an unapologetic immigration enforcer, delivering the hardline policies that a growing base of Republican voters in Arizona supported. His deputies helped turn tens of thousands of immigrants over to ICE for deportation. They rounded up day laborers, raided businesses to bust unauthorized immigrant employees working with faked papers, and swarmed neighborhoods where they arrested undocumented drivers and passengers found after stopping cars for minor traffic infractions. Arpaio had ignored a federal judge's order that said that he could not detain undocumented immigrants if they were not suspected of crimes. And in 2016, Obama's Justice Department had announced plans to prosecute Arpaio for criminal contempt of court. So Trump pardoned him. But the important thing for us here is not what the pardon said, but when the pardon happened. It happened on August 25th of 2017. And at the time, it was well known that a massive, devastating hurricane named Harvey was going to hit Houston the next day. In this case, the pardon was timed so that news about it would get lost in the news about the natural disaster that we knew was coming next. Here's one more example. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. That's a pretty famous clip of the former president. Trump later apologized and said that his comments didn't indicate his character. But this pre-election October surprise was important because of the timing of what came next. That leak was on October 7th. The recording was from all the way back in 2005. That same day, October 7th, WikiLeaks started releasing a bunch of emails and excerpts from the account of John Podesta. And the stuff that was released was very negative about Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton. And it included recordings of pieces of speeches that he had given to banks. And it included information about her getting access to a question in a debate before the debate and those kind of things. And that was also embarrassing for the Clinton campaign. And so the timing of that was basically making one stink to hide another. I need to take another quick break, but when I come back, we'll hear from my guest, Nick Carmody, about his theory on the psychological origin of people's strong political beliefs. I'll be right back. 
All right. Welcome back, everybody. My guest this week is Nick Carmodian. Nick is a uh, trained attorney and also a uh, psychologist in private practice and has built up quite an interesting following online for some of his threads analyzing some of the psychological issues behind the way that people are interacting with each other. So, Nick, welcome to Unspun. Thank you for having me on, Amanda. I appreciate it. Yeah. Could you start by uh, maybe telling my listeners a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the interaction between psychology and politics? So in 2010, I experienced two traumatic brain injuries about 10 months apart. And the experience of trying to understand the changes in personality and brain functioning, uh, along with a really toxic divorce, led me to go back to grad school to try to understand those experiences and try to understand uh, what I was um, dealing with on a personal level. Um, along the way, um, at various points in my life, I've had personal relationships with people who uh, appear to have cluster B personality disorders. And cluster B is a, a group of personality disorders that include borderline, uh, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder, which is um, what people commonly know, know as sociopaths or psychopaths. And my experiences with, in my personal life with people with those disorders um, kind of gave me a unique insight when Trump kind of came on the scene in 2015 um, with the, um, the debates. And I just I have a, a specific memory of cooking dinner for my daughter, having the debates on, and hearing him speak and having the, it was his voice, but uh, the delivery, the defense mechanisms, um, the victimhood, um, you know, basically everything that we know about uh, uh, Trump's um, demeanor and uh, his strategies and how he conducts himself. Um, I just kind of had the epiphany of, uh, you know, it, it's his voice, but it's the people that I was familiar with. And having those personal experiences and knowing how destructive those um, um, disordered people had been in my personal life uh, kind of gave me a, a sense of um, concern with uh, the effect he would have if he ever caught traction, because at that point he was just kind of a sideshow and no one thought he had a chance. But obviously that changed. And I started writing on Twitter uh, for to a large degree. It was just very cathartic. It allowed me to kind of write about uh, my own experiences as well as what I was seeing um, and be able to uh, predict with a fair amount of accuracy um, how he would how he would act, how he would conduct himself, even up to the point in 2018, predicting violence. Uh, predicting that he wouldn't leave peacefully um, and, and just pointing out that uh, civil unrest um, when perceived as you know tribal membership or um, a cult membership is a very intoxicating form of narcissistic supply. And so it was predictable that he would encourage that um, at some point, which he obviously did. And you know, along the way, my writings and um, uh, kind of caught some traction. I was able to get uh, invited on various podcasts and Lincoln Project uh, got me a lot of exposure. And I've just been uh, writing since then. I have a, a website that I, I have no paywall because I think the information is too important to hide behind a paywall. And that's uh, a Patreon account uh, that I post. I rewrite all of my threads into uh, article form because it can get pretty convoluted on Twitter format. I'll definitely put a link to your uh, website in the show notes. I do have one little follow-up question. So you used the term narcissistic supply. Can you explain what that means? So narcissistic supply is basically a, a form of energy that a narcissist um, gets from people who 
um, basically make them the focus of their attention, whether that's, you know, with with Trump, obviously the media, um, his rallies, um, really any anything that um, kind of feeds the beast, so to speak, of the uh, what is often an insatiable need for adoration or adulation or just attention. So I know that you've written on quite a few topics, but there's one I'm really interested in today. And so that's the idea of claiming victimhood. And the reason I'm interested in it is because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, so for example, I've heard evangelical Christian leaders complain about the war on Christmas or saying that Christians are the most persecuted group in American society. But when I look around me, I kind of just don't see it. And you explain this somewhat by saying people need to feel like they're the good guy. What do you mean by that? One of the things that's under it's important to understand about um, how society views victims and the rights that we grant them is that generally society views um, victims as the good guys, right? The victims are, are the, the good guys that had something happen to them and the perpetrators, the people who did the victimiza- victimizing um, are the bad guys. And that's important in what has become uh, very much an us versus them uh, tribalized political culture where, you know, the, the we or the us in whatever context that is, we, you know, we are the good guys and the, the the them are the bad guys. And because, you know, society grants victims um, these special privileges, there's something called the castle doctrine in the law where um, you have the right to defend yourself and to take extreme measures to defend yourself in your house up to and including um, committing what would other, otherwise be murder. Right? You can kill somebody to defend yourself. And so um, there's a certain, you know, certain rights that we give victims, which makes it advantageous um, to embrace that identity. One of the things that uh, victimhood also uh, provides is that there's a sense of community and a sense of identity around uh, being a member of, of a, a victimized class. We see that a lot with religion. I mean, there, I just listened to uh, Tim Alberta, who just uh, has a new book coming out on religion. And um, he's the son of a, of a pastor, evangelical. And um, his experience with, with kind of being excommunicated from the church because of his writings about Trump and his reporting. Um, but he talks about the, the persecution narrative around um, Christianity. There's a sense of community and there's a sense of uh, identity around being in a group of people where you all feel like you are um, suffering, you know, the same type of persecution or oppression or discrimination. And so, you know, that there's a that need to belong or that need to 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 feel like there's that safety in numbers. That's also appealing for a lot of people who embrace victimhood. One of the things I'm curious about is if it relates to the idea of dehumanization. So like when we try to understand things that people say, you know, when they're opposed to immigration, for example, or when they say racist things, oftentimes they're taking a person who is not someone they agree with and they're sort of treating them as being less than human. Is that kind of the same sort of thing? That definitely plays into it. One of the, uh, there was a study that I included in an article that I wrote, the hedonic um, reward that's involved with retaliatory aggression. And that's relevant towards our, our, our current political um, situation here. And so what they found was that people, um, there's, a, there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine that is responsible for the pleasure center in our brain. It's associated with experiences uh, that we find pleasurable. Um, it's produced or released with um, different um, um, experiences, uh, cocaine use, gambling, um, various addictions. Um, and so um, one of the things that they found was that people would experience 
Um, they would get a, a, a fair amount of pleasure. There would be a, a pleasurable experience around retaliatory aggression, but it had to involve um, an instance of provocation first. So what, people wouldn't just enjoy hurting somebody else or re, um, um, inflicting pain um, or aggression or violence against somebody um, if there was no prior provocation. But if there was, then there was, uh, there, they would do brain imaging and they would discover that there was a, a dopamine release or dopamine production in this area of the brain um, when, when they were administering this, this retaliatory aggression. And so when you think about what provocation is, um, in many instances, victimhood is about a subjective experience or it's a subjective belief, right? I, I fear for my life, right? Our, our emotional experiences are one of the most subjective things that we have. It's I feel. Um, and so um, one of the things that, that happens around politics and, and this need to, to almost anoint ourselves uh, uh, a victim is that once we establish that we are a victim, well, in our mind, whether subjectively, um, whether, you know, whether in actuality or not, but the subjective belief that we are a victim, well, now that that criteria has been established, um, that there's been a prior provocation. And at that point, any type of retaliatory behavior is not only justified, but it has the potential to be pleasurable, right? There's that dopamine release. And so when we dehumanize somebody, um, we're dehumanizing them because they have, you know, presumably, right, theoretically, and maybe it's just something we're creating in our mind, they have done something that um, has basically um, had their status as human revoked, right? They're no longer human. They have done something um, that is that is be, below uh, the, the status of being a human. Therefore, there's that provocation. Therefore, they don't deserve to be treated like a human. And when I treat them um, in a violent way or an aggressive way, um, not only do they deserve it, but there's a potential to uh, enjoy or have that hedonic, that dopamine um, experience as I'm dehumanizing them and hurting them. And, and as is the case with dopamine and a lot of the addictive behaviors, you can see a situation where if something feels good, you want to do it again. The more times that you do it, there's the, the possibility that there's a habit, you know, there, there's habit forming behaviors up into the point where it, should, it almost gets to the point where it can be addictive, right? Where hurting others can be so pleasurable that it becomes um, almost a, a, a habit or an addiction. And you could see where, you know, you could say somebody who's a serial killer who, who you know, sadistically hurts their victims, you could see where that there's almost an addictive like quality in that behavior. And so to bring that back to politics, you could see where people, um, they engage, repetitively engage in, in unethical, maybe illegal, unconstitutional, or maybe inhumane behavior because of this neural psychology that might be involved in this type of uh, processing or consuming um, of, of political news. And that's why it's so dangerous for people like uh, like Trump, you know, the way he speaks. We, um, one of the things I talk about is uh, uh, preemptive retaliation. Um, when you have, this goes kind of to that, that prior uh, provocation, when you have somebody like Tucker Carlson, who was repeatedly telling his Fox News audience, when they come for you, and they will, or they hate you, they hate your children, you know, that that creates a uh, perception of being victimized without anything, you know, actually having happened to that point. You know, it's just that the, 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 the fear that's involved with that, you know, I'm a victim without anything happening because somebody is going to come for me. Okay, so here's what I'm wondering. It seems to me like there's some kind of logical thinking problems at play. You know, so I can give you an example. Somebody says Black Lives Matter and somebody immediately throws back, well, all lives matter. And to me, that sounds like a straw man. 
right? Because you can say all lives matter and that's true, but what you're actually saying is that the person thinks only black lives matter and they don't think that at all, right? So, you know, it's just a, it's, it's bad reasoning. And so my question is, do you think when people do things like this that they're deliberately being deceptive or do you think they're just kind of bad at clear thinking? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think for some people, um, you know, they get emotionally uh, excited or emotionally aroused by the conflict or by you know the, the, the threat, the political threat, or per- perhaps even the violent threat because of a lot of the, the demonstrations that, that have gone on around race. Um, there's uh, an area of the brain uh, called the amygdala that is responsible for our uh, emotional center of our brain. And when it gets overexcited, over aroused, it can hijack our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for our reason, our logical thinking and our judgment. And so for some people, <clears throat> I think that it is uh, it's a genuine uh, issue of logical thinking. However, I think there's a lot of bad actors um, who manipulate, who understand how to incite people to, to not get them to think logically, to not get them to think uh, rationally. And, uh, you know, people who are emotionally reactive are very easy to manipulate, manipulate. And so I think, you know, you have a combination of both. You have a lot of people who are just um, overly emotional and not thinking rationally, but you have a lot of bad actors, especially in positions of, uh, of power or influence in the media um, who specifically um, manipulate and, and propagandize and try to uh, lead people into um, poor logical reasoning. So I'm thinking about maybe those kind of ordinary people who may just be more bad at reasoning. Is it possible or is it easy or difficult to change their belief about being a victim? Because I feel like some attitudes are easier to change than others. Like, you know, if my toddler hates broccoli and I get them to try it, then they change their mind and now broccoli is good. But is being a victim one of those things that it's very hard to change people's minds about? Well, it can be. For a lot of people, it's decades of personal experiences. Um, it could be trauma when, when you're a child. It can be you know trauma that's lasted for decades. Um, you know, one of the things that I try to teach my clients, things that I try to live is I try to focus on, you know, being resilient. Another thing that, you know, that I really try to focus on is specifically with my, with my brain injuries, because after I experienced the brain injuries, I would, for a long time, I was a shell of, of, uh, of who I had been before that. And one of the things that I kind of focus on is that, and I try to try to teach this um, and coach this is that, uh, you know, it's important not to, fo- you know, not to focus on falling down. You know, everybody falls down in life. People get knocked down. People get kicked down. Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's things that people did to you. Um, but all, too often when we are caught up in the mindset of, of being victimized, um, we, we, we kind of obsess about what happened to us and how it ruined our lives or how we'll never able to get over that. And one of the things that I try to teach is to find purpose and meaning um, once you can can create purpose and meaning um, from an adverse or a traumatic experience, oftentimes once we're allowed to do, once we we are able to do that, we no longer are defined by what happened to us, um, but we're instead defined by um, how we responded to what happened to us and how we overcame what happened to us. And that's kind of uh, you know that's kind of the definition of, of being resilient and overcoming that. Now to bring that you know from the from the micro back to the macro with the politics. Um, you know, too often, um, you know, as I pointed out earlier, we, you know, we have media figures and politicians who are constantly reinforcing the victimhood narrative. Now, one of the reasons why Trump likes to do that so often is because if everybody's a victim and nobody is in control of their lives 
or their environment, then it makes a really fertile uh, um, situation for him to come in and be the I alone can fix it type of demagogue. And so, and you hear the same thing with what I call the media authoritarians, people like Carlson, Bannon, stuff like that. And so there, you know, there's a, it's really hard to get people to, to kind of divest them from that identity of victimhood when, you know, they could go to therapy for an hour and, and um, you know, really delve into that and try to divorce them from that mindset. But as soon as they go home and they're listening to four, six, eight hours of, of, uh, of, of political media, um, you know, it kind of pulls them right back into that mindset. And so um, this is an issue I would think that would be true on kind of all sides of the political spectrum as well, right? Isn't the kind of victimhood mindset something anybody might fall prey to? Yeah, absolutely. All of this is, is more of a human condition. It's not a, a right or left. I, I tend to focus on the right because I, you know, I, I've, at least for the last, you know, eight, 10 years, I view that as more of a threat to what's going on, specifically uh, Donald Trump. Um, but absolutely. I mean, this happens on, you know, on, on both sides of the political aisle. Um, you know, it really, um, identity politics has really kind of uh, come up around the sense of victimization. And that's not to say there's not discrimination, there's not oppression. Um, those things don't exist. Um, but there, you know, there, there is a, a utility to embracing that and define, as we talked about earlier, defining yourself in that way. And especially for certain groups, um, you know, who, who rely on that for fundraising or, or you know, for, for votes or clicks. I want to go back to the idea of preemptive retaliation, because I feel like this explains a lot of things that we see in the news. Um, so, you know, for example, states passing really suppressive voter legislation, or I know a couple of cities in Texas actually passed into like their, you know, city code that uh, they would not have Sharia law in their city, even though nobody was trying to put Sharia law in their city. And it would not work because it would be unconstitutional anyway. It seems to me like sometimes people are trying to solve problems that don't actually exist. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like why why people would want to do that? Well, obviously there's a, there's an advantage to that. Now, one of the, uh, I think, you know, probably the most prominent example of what you said, and I think it even came up in, uh, in one of the, the court hearings with John Eastman, where they were talking about this was a solution to, you know, his, his uh, strategy for, um, um, trying to keep Trump in office was that it was basically a, a solution to a problem in search of a problem. Right. And, um, you know, the, mo- the biggest example of that was the, um, January 6th, right. Or the stop to steal. It was basically a solution to a problem that didn't exist. And that's, you know, that's one of the problems with, um, the kind of, uh, the embracing victimhood is that, you know, if you believe that, um, if you believe that you have been victimized, um, you, as we said, you have special rights or it becomes, you know, become justified in retaliating against that. And so, you know, the case with uh, like January 6th is that if, if a, um, a duty driven man or woman has been lied to enough, um, eventually they start to believe those lies. And, um, you know, that will result in a, a misapplication of their value of their uh, uh, values and a, a misperformance of their duties. And at some point it, it, it becomes patriotic or it becomes your duty to either take the election back or to, you know, to steal the election back if you believe it has been stolen. And so that's, you know, that's one of the dangerous things about, um, the, you know, the psychology of, of the victimization is that, you know, people, you know, as we talked about with that study with the neuropsychology, people, you know, they, they become justified and not just justified, but uh, it becomes a, um, a pleasurable experience in, in that retaliation. 
And you talked a little bit about the role of sort of political media, and I think, you know, particularly political opinion media, right? Like the evening shows on cable networks kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering about the role of social media. And here's the thing I'm thinking about, that, um, you know, humans exist in community with each other, right? And sometimes we like develop our norms and those kind of things based on the reaction that we get from the people that we interact with. Is the ability to find people who are going to agree with whatever you think online magnifying the problem, right? So is your choice to spend a lot of time, you know, on social media, in particular groups on social media, those kind of things, is that likely to cause some of those thinking problems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's a certain amount of valid, you know, and back in you know, prior to the internet and social media and that if you had a radical idea, you might just be, you know, the social norms might that you, you just might be kind of shunned from civil or polite society because it's, you know, your, your belief was too radical or too extreme. However, social media and the internet, it allows people from all over the world to connect with each other who have, you know, similar radical or extreme ideas. And, you know, we saw this with like QAnon and then it starts to spread and it starts to, to gain, um, more traction. Um, and, you know, it's another uh, interesting aspect of neuropsychology with tribalism and, and groups and validation is that is that there are uh, neuroimaging studies that have shown that the areas of the brain that become active when experiencing physical pain also become active when experiencing social isolation or exclusion. And so what that would suggest is that if somebody is in a political tribe and if, the, if everybody in the tribe has a certain belief or everybody um, adheres to a, maybe a conspiracy theory, is that if you were to stand, stand up to that, to that group, a group that you derive um, identity from, and you were to risk being isolated or excluded from that group, that it's possible that from a neuropsychological uh, standpoint, that there may be a pain avoidance um, incentive to not stand up or deviate from that group. And so, you know, from that standpoint, you know, it actually may be a, uh, a physically painful experience to, to uh, deviate or to not go along with, a, with, with the tribe, whatever context that may be. So that seems like that doesn't bode very well for holiday dinners and those kind of things. With, That's right. Yeah. Well, it, it, the unfortunate part of that is that it, it, it almost seems like it is a, you know, we're more, maybe it's less painful or less uncomfortable to, um, to kind of be ostracized from the family tribe than it is from your political tribe. And that, that just shows how powerful this stuff is, uh, you know, where you're willing to, to, to sacrifice and compromise a family relationship in order to be in good standing of, you know, the cult or the, the tribe or, you know, whatever group it is that, that, that you associate with politically. Yeah, you're like-minded people. Right. <laughs> Use nice words. Yeah. All right. Nick Carmody, thank you so much for coming on Unspun this week. Well, thank you for having me on, Amanda. Appreciate it. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone. <laughs>